From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. Dogs have been aiding police departments and law enforcement for decades, as we most recently saw with the capture of prison escapee Danilo Cavalcante. How are the dogs trained? What breeds are good for police work? We sit down with experts in the field to discuss both canine units and the use of compassionate comfort dogs. Humans, we move loudly and not pay attention to some of the subtle cues that the dogs are picking up. And so I think we could benefit from learning from our dogs. Charity Howard takes a look at 60 years of the Philadelphia Ballet. We're going to start off the season with our Carmen uh, breathing new life into this incredibly traditional story. All of that is straight ahead on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. The Delaware Valley was on edge earlier this month after prison escapee Danilo Cavalcante, a convicted murderer, was on the loose for days. The story received national attention, and we all watched as police closed in on him in Chester County during a massive manhunt. And what warmed the hearts of many was the keen sense and tracking of Cavalcante by U.S. Customs and Border Protection canine officer Yoda. He is a Belgian Melanois, a breed that is considered to be extremely smart and energetic and is often used in law enforcement. Now, Yoda was the talk of that week. And we thought it would be fitting to delve deeper into the breeding, training, and work of police dogs. We have many experts here on the subject today, and they brought some furry friends with them as well. We'll meet everyone. First, Bob Doherty. Bob is a retired Cheltenham Township Police Department officer who's part of a team at the Penn Vet Working Dog Center at the University of Pennsylvania. They've created an innovative, positive reinforcement-based program, and they partner with police departments to build and train Canine units. Also with us is Cynthia Otto. She's a veterinarian and director of the Penn Vet Working Dog Center at UPenn. She's also professor of working dog sciences and sports medicine at the University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine. And Janice Campbell with us. She is back for another visit on Bridging Philly. She is the president of the Tri-State Canine Response Team. And their mission is to comfort, support, and enhance the quality of life of those who are suffering from a personal condition or community crisis utilizing the human-canine bond and its power to heal. And with Janice also is Paul Hammond. He's with the Delmarva Search and Rescue and also with the Tri-State Canine Response Team. Welcome, everyone, to Bridging Philly. Thank you for inviting us today. And, of course, we have to meet our furry friends. Uh, Janice, you brought two of your dogs with you. Can you tell us who is with us today? My dog is Eliana. She's a golden retriever. She's a year and a half old. So she's kind of new to the comfort work, but she has been working since she was eight weeks old. She was deployed to Nashville, Tennessee for the mass shooting and also Uvalde, Texas. Oh, wow. Wow. And her team members here is Mally. Tell us about Mally. Mally is actually a rescue dog herself. She's about 10 years old Mm. and she specializes in trailing. Okay. And what breed is Mally? Labrador Retriever. Labrador Retriever. Yeah, I definitely want to get into the different breeds. And I I think because Yoda was this Belgian Malinois, and I've never heard of a Belgian Malinois before, uh, we learned about Yoda. So we'll talk about the different breeds and the training. Um, But I think what came out of this story is, interestingly enough, a lot of people were like, oh, you know, I think I'll get a Belgian Malinois. 
Uh, <laughs> but uh, Cynthia, you're shaking your head. From what I understand, hanging around the house and being your BFF is not what the Belgian Melanois is all about. Want to talk about that? I've had one of our dogs from the Penn Vet Working Dog Center as a foster. Um, his name was Blitz. He is currently a working law enforcement canine, and he was a lot of energy, um, very, very intense, definitely not your average pet. And I will uh, defer to Bob Dougherty, who has multiple um, of the Malinois in his home and in his program and uh, really is sort of a master of Malinois. Oh, great. So... Malinois, are they great pets or not so much? So they are great pets if they have a job. Okay. Other than training them, I also own one. I own a 86-pound Malinois, um, and I'm lucky enough to have him work every day with me at the center. And uh, he is a really good pet. However, if he didn't have an outlet for all the energy he has, I don't think he would be very well-behaved at home. Okay, okay. So besides the Belgian Malinois, what breeds are typically ideal for being part of canine units? I can tell you that Labrador retrievers, detection work, and some of the tracking and trailing work that goes on, search and rescue, of course, uh, for many police departments that go on the dual purpose route, which means patrol, finding people, and also some kind of detection work. Most of the successful pointier breeds are German Shepherds, Dutch Shepherds, and the Malamas are the most um, common breeds seen in those roles. Um, for the hunting breeds, there's uh, Labrador Retrievers have been fantastic for detection work in the past. And most recently, a lot of police departments are now also using them to for tracking and evidence collection. So you have a dog that can find an explosive, but also can be used to recover evidence and track people. And that's what we see commonly now in the law enforcement side of the house. Okay. And for ours, with the crisis response work, we don't re-differentiate. As long as the dog has the right temperament, mm -hmm. obedience, and training, it can do the handling. They're able to be a wide variety of dogs and breeds. Okay. Well, I do want to get into the training and the difference in training between um, the dogs that you handle, uh, Janice, and then, of course, the canine dogs. I'm, I'm assuming that the training is different, so let's get right into that. So, Janice, of course, your dogs are a little different because they are trained to comfort uh, and to help people right after a tragedy happens. Um, what kind of training is involved in a comfort dog? Well, I'll go specifically with, like, Eliana. I got her at eight weeks old. And as picking her out, I knew who her mother and her father were. I knew the temperament of the mother and the father, and I knew what type of litters that they produced. So we went in with the mindset of getting a puppy that could do this type of work. When they came out of their whelping boxes, some of them were against the wall or holding to the ground. Eliana walked down in the middle of the dining room like, here I am, world, here I am, <laughs> very, very confident. So I knew she was a dog that had a lot of confidence we started at eight weeks old, introducing her to 100 people, 100 days, floor surfaces, sight, sound, smells, as much as we could at eight weeks old. Mm -hmm. With that being said, we have 98 dogs on our team. We have dogs that have come out of the shelter that haven't had that experience, but have wonderful temperaments that have made some of our best dogs. So we can catch up on that with the training and doing you know, an evaluation on the dog and exposure. 
So we can um, start them as puppies, go through all the training, similar to what a service dog would be going mm -hmm. through. Uh, but we also can take dogs, second chance dogs, career change dogs. A lot of our seeing eye dogs that don't make it or police dogs, bomb sniffing dogs that need to work and need a job can come over and work with us as our uh, comfort dogs. Oh, okay. That's interesting. But I would assume that that's not necessarily the case when you're talking about a canine dog. Um, what goes into the training of a police dog? And do they also have to be obtained when they are babies? Is that best? Very similarly, our dogs at the Penn Vet Working Dog Center come to us at eight weeks old and they start their training. And those are dogs that are going to be detection dogs. They might be in law enforcement. All of our dogs live with foster families uh, and come to school five days a week. Part of that is their training so that they can be adapted to an environment because they're going to live with their handler and their handler's family. They're going to be working in an urban environment typically. And so from the time they're eight weeks, they get that exposure to people, to surfaces, just like Janice's dogs. Except when we're selecting our dogs, we're looking at the family, the mother of this dog. We're looking at the relatives of this dog, and we're looking for that high-end Lots of energy as opposed to the calmer, sort of confident but calm. Now we want confident but lots of energy. Go, go, go. These are really very active dogs, uh, and they're really, they can be quite a handful. Once they're in our program, we start to give them some basic training, and our trainer will then sort of start to cultivate what their career path is going to be. Not every German Shepherd or Malinois that comes in is going to be a law enforcement canine. And it's trainers like Bob who can take that dog and really see what they're going to be happiest at and most successful at. And so, Bob, why don't you take it from there? Um, like Janice says, uh, big for us as well are the environmentals, the socialization with people. We're always looking for a confident dog, but we're also looking for a dog that's very well balanced, that can is easy to teach, is willing to learn. And many of the training foundations are very basic obedience and impulse control. And we also start very early the detection work, the search work. So by playing little games, we teach the dogs to find people and get rewarded. So it's teach, mark a behavior, and then reward it. Right. So whether it is a dog that we're teaching how to find a specific odor, in our case, it's a training odor, which will later be easy to teach their career odor of like explosives, narcotics, or guns. So these training exercises are done daily, you know, over the course of a year or more until the dogs are, in many cases, proficient in their foundations of finding odor, mm -hmm. whether it's an odor that's going to eventually be an explosive or a narcotic, or it's going to be that of a human. So teaching them to find the person. And then on the law enforcement side, of course, part of that will be the potential of apprehension or biting someone. So that is also part of the training as well. And it's all kind of wrapped up at the end in a nice little package of a dog that is um, very well balanced and rounded that we compare with a eventual handler with the police department. And then they'll go and continue through a formal school with that handler, whether it's an eight week or it's actually now it's 10 weeks. So a 10 week detection course or a 12-week patrol course, many of the police officers will attend both. So you're talking about, you know, 20 plus weeks of training before these police officers really are on the street working. Bridging Philly continues in a moment.
back to Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. Well, talk about some of the different cases that the dogs from the Delmarva Search and Rescue team have been involved in and, and what they're doing on a day-to-day basis. Well, we first have to be called by law enforcement to assist. We don't go out on our own without a request. But we've been involved with, uh, unfortunately, people that have uh, gone missing, people that, uh, children that have been lost. And uh, we've also been doing some cold cases with the police to see if we could find any closure for the families. Yeah. As far as our training goes for the search dogs, we look for any dog that's motivated. My wife and I go down to Florida and we train with a team down there and they actually have a Chihuahua mix and a rat terrier (laughs) that are fantastic search dogs, but they're motivated. So the key is the motivation. Then we have to figure out what discipline they're best at. And then what is their reward? Some dogs, we have some German shepherds on our team and we have some Malinois. They're mostly tugs. They like tug toys. Hmm. Labrador retrievers, which we have, love food. So Hmm. they're, they're food motivated. And once you get that identified, figure out what discipline, whether it's trailing, whether it's live area, or whether it's human remains detection, once you figure that out and you figure out their motivation, You've got a, usually a fantastic dog that loves to work. How long, if you guys can give me a little bit of history, um, how long has law enforcement um, been using dogs as part of their work? I mean, historically, I think Baltimore is credited with having the first police canine unit. Um, but I think when you go back into real history, I mean, dogs have been used for guarding everything from livestock to cities to homes. So, I mean, as far as the use of these dogs for certain jobs goes back to the creation of the breeds, yeah. I'm sure. I think police departments started to add police dogs to their departments from like basically the late 50s and on. And I think for the most part, it's been relatively common for many police departments to have that as part of their tools for doing you know, the job of protecting and serving yeah. the public. Yeah. And also, Janice, how long um, have police departments been using uh, dogs to kind of help out after a tragedy? How, how long have we been recognizing that dogs can actually help people heal and kind of calm down situations? I would say we were using them for hundreds of years, yeah. but I think police mm-hmm. departments are now just seeing the value of bringing the dogs in um, especially bringing dogs in that are working with team members who are crisis counselors that have the experience to be work in those traumatic times to do psychological first aid with the people that they're interacting with. So it's not very new, but it's being more and more received by departments. And you'll see a lot of departments getting their own dogs within that they're using as facility dogs, going to schools and doing community outreach that they're working with now, realizing that you know, that gap between the bridge that the dog can build is very, very helpful during those times. And our dog's rewards, as we were all speaking about our dog's rewards, ours are getting that pet, getting the comfort, being touched. So the more that, you know, they can interact with people, um, that is their reward, not so much food or treats, but being um, there with you and during that time of crisis. Mm-hmm. I find the uh, the special scenting ability of dogs to be fascinating. So I kind of want to go back to the whole Cavalcante search and how Yoda 
was able to find him and sniff him out. I don't know if you guys can kind of delve into what the police were doing. What's the first thing the officers do when they're going in to try to find one person in particular um, who happens to be a person that's a threat to the society, of course? You know, what, what goes into that? Well, I can't, I mean, I can't talk specifically about what happened in that, case. In that you know, at that specific time and case, but in general, Yoda is going to be trained to detect human odor. In some cases, disturbances in the grass, the dirt, um, but the dogs are pretty much trained to hunt human odor. So in a case where they deploy a dog like Yoda, Yoda is going to pretty much use his nose and, you know, as one asset that he has to pick up that human odor is out there that we can't smell, we can't see. And then he would be trained to follow that odor to its source. So if Cavalcante was laying down somewhere and hiding, we might walk past him, but the dog is going to use his nose to pick up that odor, ground disturbance, whatever it is that that dog is sensing, Mm -hmm. and then pinpoint it. And of course, you know, accompanied by a team of tactical officers, they'll do what they did there, which is they put him in a situation where he couldn't escape. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, they utilize the dog to do its job. And But that would be in general, like how you would deploy a dog to find that odor that's out there that where there should be no human odor. Got it. You know, it's interesting because I guess I watch too much TV because <laughs> I thought, you know, we all have that image of, you know, an officer putting some kind of clothing up to a dog's nose and say, OK, now go find them. I'm thinking they needed something from Cavalcanti's, you know, attire or something to find his specific scent. But they're looking for just human odor. Now, that, I just learned something. I didn't realize that. Janice, if you can talk a little bit about and perhaps share a story of when one of your dogs were able to comfort or help someone that was in distress, you know, after a tragic situation. It just seems that these dogs know what people to go to and who really needs comfort in a particular situation. Well, we're talking about different scents that people give off, and it's pretty clear to us that our dogs are able to pick up when somebody's stressed Mm. and who needs them the most I don't know if it's by the smell of the person or the change, chemical change in the person, but our dogs clearly need that. I'm thinking when you asked me that question to go back to um, a day when we were in Las Vegas after the mass shooting, we were in a memorial garden and my then golden retriever named Cece, who has since passed, kept going up to this one lady to the point where I apologized to her and I said, I am so sorry, but my dog will not leave you. She literally walked up to her and put her head on her shoulder. And she said, that's okay. She said, I'm here by myself. She unzipped her bag and she took out her husband's cremains. She had flown in that day to pick up her husband and she wanted to go to the memorial garden and take his photo down and write a goodbye note to her husband, but she could not bring herself to go up to the wall. So Cece and I accompanied her up to the wall and she took the picture down and she wrote a goodbye note to Brian And then we went back up and put it there together. This happens hundreds and hundreds of times when we're out working with our dog. It's not just that one time. We'll be going down across Memorial and my dog will walk and she'll stop up to someone, lean in, and the person's bottom lip will be quivering. They clearly, clearly can sense who knows them the most. 
not just when we're out on, you know, big deployments like mass shootings, but even in our schools. When we go to a school and the dogs are working with the children, they will pick a child and go up and stay with them and indicate that that child needs them. And we find out from a teacher that they may have lost a brother or sister or sibling. So our dogs clearly, and all of us that have pets here sitting around, we all know what our dogs do for us and how they can tell when we have a bad day. So it really is a continuum of that and the work that they do. And I'm actually honored to be on the other end of the leash working with my dog when they do these wonderful things. It's it's a gift for me to be able to kind of be there to help facilitate the gift that they have to be able to, you know, pay to people during this time. So, Cynthia, the sensibilities that the dogs have, I, I just, it's fascinating and it's amazing how they can just pick up whether it's a actual scent or it's a feeling or it's anxiety. It's just amazing that they can pick that up. Dogs are magical <laughs> and they really do have a lot of senses and we know that they read the world through their nose and the different odors, but they also recognize even the most subtle body language cues. So they speak in a language of body language and I think as humans, we tend to move loudly and not pay attention to some of the subtle cues that the dogs are picking up. And so I think we could benefit from learning from our dogs and really kind of quieting ourselves down a little bit and letting all of that information come into us. But in the meantime, our dogs are our wonderful translators. Yeah, that they are. Now, as far as canines, do they have special diet and special physical activity requirements to keep them healthy and going? So as a veterinarian, I'm going to take this one. Okay. Yes, please. <laughs> um, so the diet is, you know, there are a lot of great diets out there. And really what we want to do is make sure that it's a balanced diet and it's good for that dog. From the perspective, though, of diet, I think our biggest problem in this country is not inadequate food but excessive food. So we have an obesity crisis in our pets. And we know that obesity in pets, just like in people, can cause other medical problems. There was an amazing study where they looked at Labradors, and if they were fed to a point where they actually had not overweight to the point that you go, oh my gosh, that's a fat dog, Mm -hmm. but, you know, overweight, maybe 20% over ideal, it actually shortened their life by two years. And so when we think about... we feed our dogs because we love them and we keep feeding them, but we're shortening their lives. We're slowly killing them. And so we really need to think about keeping our dogs in a fit condition. And at the Penn Vet Working Dog Center, we've been developing fitness programs for our dogs because these are athletes. These are incredible athletes and they need to be able to move and maneuver and we want to prevent injury. And so that physical fitness is huge in improving their quality of life, their mobility, and also their longevity. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this uh, where, as we close. I kind of just want to know everybody's personal story as to why you are in the line of work that you are. Why do you do what you do? And I'll just go ahead and start with you, Janice. Well, my background was mental health. I worked in the Mental Health Association for 20-plus years, working with um, group homes and people that were in crisis in the hospital. And I could see the difference that the dogs could make that sometimes counselors couldn't make and the connections that people had with dogs. And at the time when we started Tri-State as a nonprofit in 2015, 
you didn't hear from police officers or other people that it's okay not to be okay. We weren't talking about mindfulness. We weren't talking about taking care of ourselves. And I really saw the need there. So we started Tri-State as a group for our first responders, our police, our firemen, our EMTs, our 911 call takers, to be able to support them when they're out there taking care of everyone else and not taking care of themselves. And just really happy to see going forward now that we're doing that. Also, we do go in after crisis, but we've, we're also working on the education end of it where we're going in a lot of times after a suicide by an officer or a sixth grader at a school. Mm. We've gone into um, teaching and being certified to teach suicide preventive education. And last year, we certified 850 uh, police officers and first responders in suicide preventive education. Wow. So we're, we're following the need in the community. Meaningful work, of course. Paul? In my case, and, and my wife's, and my wife actually deploys with Tri-State with uh, either Mally or another dog that we have. But we got into it. I can blame Mally for this. She was, like I said, a rescue from down around New Orleans that we got back in uh, 2014. And she was horrible walking on a leash because she was feral. And my wife just said, gee, I wonder if she'd make a good search dog. So that got us connecting with uh, National Search and Rescue, NASAR. And then they put us in touch with uh, Pennsylvania Search and Rescue. And we got the name of three teams. And all the teams are volunteers, uh, including Delmarva Search and Rescue. But we uh, started training with a team in Chester County. And then we moved in 2019. We both retired and moved down to Delaware and got started with uh, Delmarva Search and Rescue. So with all that, we went through all the different trainings. You have to, uh, every two years, get recertified with your dog. Mally and I are a team. We, my wife can't run Mally, and I can't run her dog because mm-hmm. we're certified as a team. We just felt, as volunteers, it was our time to volunteer, to give back. Okay. Bob? Excluding the part where I worked in the kennel as a kid in Connecticut with my uncle and things like that and owned dogs are my whole life, mm-hmm. um, I was lucky enough that in the police department that I worked in, I was able to work with three partners during that, that time. During that time, I also started to volunteer down at the Penn Vet Working Dog Center, and that has turned into a full-time job. I think the reason that I do what I do now is because I can tell you this, when I retired, the last thing I wanted to do was have anything to do with police officers or dogs. Um, however, uh, my experience with not only the Working Dog Center, but a plethora of other really good trainers, not just in the police world, but in different aspects of training. We've learned, or I've learned, that there is really a different way of training dogs than what I had been exposed to most of my career. Um, the reason I do what I do now is because there is a very good and fair way to train really good police dogs without being harsh, without causing conflict between the handler and the dog. So being able to teach that to other trainers, being able to teach that to other handlers now, kind of in a, in a sense, I feel like we're able to help change the paradigm of how dogs should be trained and behavior of dogs and communicating with dogs in a way that we get the same results, only we get it in, in my opinion, a much fairer way and a much clearer way for the dog so that, that we're just not forcing the dog to do things. The dog wants to do it. Yeah. And for me, that makes this job really just such a pleasure. Yeah. Cynthia? 
So I am trained as an emergency and critical care veterinarian. And so working in the emergency room, one of the things that I realized is that I wanted to have a bigger impact and was contacted by a search and rescue team um, back in 1990. And when I moved back to Pennsylvania, I found the Pennsylvania Task Force One was starting to develop. So as an urban search and rescue um, team, and I was part of that team up through 2010. And being involved with those dogs was really special. I was not a handler. Um, I provided the medical care. I provided the support. We started to look at the health and the, the well-being and what we could do to keep these dogs working well. And that was a really important part of what I was doing and responded to Hurricane Floyd and then responded to 9-11. And, of course, 9-11 really kind of jolted all of us. Um, and it was that opportunity to see the importance of these dogs, including some of the comfort dogs that were, were working there, um, how impactful that is. But as a scientist, as a veterinarian, I was concerned that we didn't have as much knowledge, um, as much information to really help these dogs and to make sure we had enough of these dogs. So what it was to keep these dogs healthy, to make sure that we were selecting the right dogs, that it was good for the dogs as well as good for us. Uh, so it took me 10 years uh, to develop and open the Working Dog Center, the Penn Vet Working Dog Center, as kind of the legacy of 9-11 and the tribute to 9-11. And in that 10 years time, I also had a, a wonderful dog who was a therapy dog at Ronald McDonald House and taught me all about training because it was very difficult, um, but taught me really about how to train dogs. And so I started to understand and, and know that I had to hire really good people um, like Bob Dougherty and, and Anne-Marie D'Angelo and Pat Kainarolu, who are um, really have led our training team and our current trainers who really, really make a huge difference for these dogs you know, really looking at it from the welfare, well-being of the dogs, helping people, a one health approach where we're all benefiting. Yeah. Well, I find this all very fascinating. And I, I think uh, it's great that you've been able to come in here and shed some light on the relationship between man and dogs, dogs helping man and man helping dogs and working together collaboratively to uh, do so many different things and actually doing good uh, at the end of the day. Bob Doherty, Cynthia Otto, Janice Campbell, and Paul Hammond, thank you all so much for what you do and for being here, and thank you for your service. Thank you for having us. Thank you for letting us share. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. The Philadelphia Ballet is celebrating 60 years of dance in this city. Let's learn more about it on this latest Shara in the City. That's the sound of ballet shoes, one after the other, keeping pace with a grand piano at the direction of Philadelphia Ballet Artistic Director Angel Correa, originally from Spain as the Philadelphia Ballet prepares to open for its 2023-24 season, celebrating some pretty big milestones, its 60th anniversary as well as the 10th anniversary of Angel as the Artistic Director, who says he's celebrating by bringing a little bit of his home country 
to the city of brotherly love. So the, the walls are going to be moving and creating different spaces. They're rehearsing Korea's highly anticipated new version of the classic Carmen, set to debut this fall. I am, I am sort of bringing Spain to Philly. But first, we're sitting down with executive director of the ballet, Shelley Power, who's sharing some bright highlights looking into the new season. So you've got a new season, you've got anniversaries upon anniversaries. So let's start with the milestone of the 60th, yes? Speaking of myself being north of 60 um, and my life experiences, when I think back at what the ballet has accomplished, it's really amazing. Yes, there's been hills and valleys, but we have one of the most well-renowned companies, a beautiful um, company of dancers, and an orchestra to die for, not to mention our incredible conductor, Beatrice Afron. We're just so fortunate to have all of this talent right here in Philadelphia. It's really amazing. So we're very excited to celebrate Barbara Weisberger, who was our founder, along with George Balanchine, one of the most historic and prolific choreographers uh, that had such an impact on the world of ballet, actually came to Philadelphia and founded this ballet company and school. So, you know, there's a lot of pride that we've carried with us and a lot of responsibility, actually, to keep evolving. So as we look forward to the 60th anniversary and to celebrate that over the next couple of years, uh, we look forward to an expansion of our building. Finally, these dancers, artists, students will be able to have a facility that actually supports their needs. So let's talk about how you're going to celebrate. Uh, well, we'll celebrate like it's um, 1999. What's that expression? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we're going to start off with a gala, um, really kind of friendly and not stuffy, but a lot of fun at the Bellevue after our Friday night performance. The dancers will be there orchestra, um, friends of the ballet, and then of course we go into Nutcracker, which we've increased the number of performances. Um, then we celebrate in February with the iconic ballet of Giselle, and then into a master's program with three prolific choreographers, and then we finish the season with the dream. Um, but that's how we're going to start off the season with our Carmen, uh, breathing new life into this incredibly traditional story that's been around for many, many uh, decades. Angel, our artistic director, is really working very, very hard to create this new um, rendition of Carmen, along with our uh, music conductor, as I mentioned, Beatrice, who's putting together this music, which is really going to be um, unique and never done before. And having Angel with his um, Spanish background, um, he's really taking that influence into uh, the production. So we're very excited. So Angel, he has his 10th coming up, the artistic director. Angel, when we think about how lucky we are in Philadelphia to have Angel, he has had a career, he's well-renowned around the world. Um, he's actually giving back to the dancers that artistic vision in the studios on an everyday basis. It's very, very unique to have such artistry bestowed on dancers 
answers. But Angel brings all of that together. Now, this new building, everyone's looking forward to it, but there have been some delays. I am absolutely 100% sure that this building is going to happen. Okay, that is my dream morning, noon, and night. And we're working very hard to make that happen. Where, you know, 60 to 65% there, costs went up, cost of goods went up, um, getting access to goods, labor cost went up. 2023, touch wood, uh, will be there. So I think we're getting closer to our financing. And um, we've got all our building permits, um, all of our drawings, all of our architectural work has been done. Um, so we're like one step away from just stepping onto that path of construction. And I think once that happens, people are going to really get excited about seeing this develop and evolve in their neighborhoods and for the city of Philadelphia. But the building is going to be representative of the world-class ballet company, but as equally important is a training center and community involvement. We have designed this building to bring the community into our building. It's not going to be closed doors. The way we've designed it, we have this gathering space. It's not a lobby to pass through. It's a gathering space that connects to a black box where we can have innovative choreography, after-school programs for children. They don't even have to take ballet to actually participate. And, and that's the idea. The arts enrich our lives. You know, we talk about all of the strife that this next generation is facing, and we're really trying to pull ourselves out. But the secret is the arts, and I truly believe that, because my own personal experience, that saved my life. Having the arts in my life, having focus, discipline, goal setting. And I didn't become a prolific dancer, but I have an appreciation of what that creativity does in your life. And when you see dancers or musicians that are at this high level, you want to be the best you can be because they are being the best they can be. And it's inspiring. And then the community engagement piece, of course, to me is the absolutely highest of priorities to be able to share with um, our communities and be a part of this North Broad uh, renaissance that's happening. We are one of the last ballet companies to have a full-fledged facility in the country. I think it's our time. And then as if it were right on cue, Angel Correa, the artistic director, walks in between rehearsals just to share with KYW his thoughts on his rendition of Carmen, as well as his very special personal milestone. 10 years with the company. What does this mean to you? Uh, it, it really feels like a flash. It feels like I joined yesterday. Um, I mean, it's it's a big responsibility because, uh, you know, the company has an incredible history thanks to Barbara Weisberger and all the amazing directors that have uh, contributed to the to get the company where it is today. Going forward, you're making history. I mean, Carmen's going to be so different. Creating Carmen is something that I've been thinking about for quite a while because I'm from Spain. And I, I don't think that there, be, there has been ever a Spaniard from Spain that has created a ballet Carmen. So I, I was like, okay, it's due. Um, so I decided to go for it. And um, it's been an amazing journey. I got together with our costume department to try to uh, create all the costumes necessary for the ballet. Some of the costumes were created in Spain. Some of the costumes are being created here. Um, we're now in the last touches of, you know, all the props, uh, what, how I'm going to recreate all the, uh, the different scenes. They're going to be created by different walls. So the, the walls are going to be moving and creating different spaces. So you're bringing Spain to Philly. I am. I am sort of bringing Spain to Philly uh, in a very dramatic way. But uh, I think that is a great story. And last but not least, principal dancers Nayara Lopez and Jack Thomas, lead dancers in Carmen. Monumental in terms of how you're going to take it on, but also what this means to Philly. It means a lot to us. 
It does, and you know, it has been danced before, but it has been years since, right? So a new production, and right now, I feel like I'm really thrilled, and I'm very honored to be playing Carmen, um, and I feel like it's going to be something, it's going to be a story, it's definitely going to be something to remember. Let's talk about how important it is for you to step into this role. Yeah, it's uh, what we've been working our whole lives for. It's terrifying. <laughs> only imagine but as Nayara said you know we trust each other if for us it's not another you know fairy tale ballet it's raw it's real it's and Philadelphians know that we see it all and it's a very gritty city and it's a very gritty ballet Carmen opens at the Philadelphia Ballet October 5th thank you so much for joining us for Bridging Philly brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program Organ Donors Save Lives be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly. And please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. For Sharaday Howard and our producer, Patty McMahon, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well. <laughs>